Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a demonologist? For that matter, what is a demon? Is there any accredited school where you can study that subject? Uh, welcome to, I'm sorry, Ben, I didn't give you your script. Thank you. Well, hey, you know, it would help to do an intro with, with well, one of those. Psychic powers so, are not up to snuff today. Oh, I could I could attempt to, to remote view, but I, I, right. don't, I don't guarantee any success. Okay. Uh, so welcome to the 825th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben. And uh, this is our la- this was our last show of 2019, but now it is the first week of uh, January second first week first week. Uh, it's first show of 2020. First fro- first show of 2020. So I am Ben, and those hellish questions and the hellish intro to the show came from my co-host, partner in paranormal adventures, and dad Paul. And uh, today we offer a new guest on a popular subject, and we welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. Or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or contact us via uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Nathaniel Gillis is a paranormal researcher and author who was well-known as a religious demonologist. After living in a haunted house, Nathaniel spent 20 years researching what it was he encountered. He is the founder of Preternatural Epiphenomenal Philosophy, and he has sought to redefine the nature of haunting phenomena, excuse me, ghosts and high strangeness. I personally like his quote, the reason they are playing by different rules is because they are playing a different game. So Nathaniel Gillis, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, folks. I'm very blessed and honored to be here with everybody. Thank you. Oh well, it's great, great to have you with us. So let's uh, let's let's start off with something that seems seemingly very simple to define, but uh, really could probably go take us for, through the rest of the show. So, what is demonology, and specifically religious demonology? Demonology, the field of demonology, is a study of malevolent intelligences, and it's, as you said, it's a very difficult thing to define. Um, but the only way I would define the field of demonology is by going to biblical antiquity, Abrahamic religions, and at least representing to everyone what they believe. And that's the field of demonology. That's what's called systematic demonology. Hmm. Um, that's, for the most part, most of your demonologists think like that. And so if I were to give you the, uh, I guess, correct elementary answer, the field of demonology is the approach and study of intelligences, usually malevolent, within the Bible or Judaism uh, and even in Islam. Okay. Now, I have looked around for years, actually, for degree programs and this sort of thing, and there really aren't any uh, from accredited institutions. Uh, there are right. programs. It's difficult even to find <clears throat> programs in parapsychology. Uh, however, one would have to study folklore uh, and perhaps theology, although... Ten years in seminaries, we never had a course in any sort of thing that would be equivalent to demonology. I mean, there were certain certain select, hand-picked priests would be uh, educated in their narrow view of it, but, I mean, that was really about it. So, um, in that case, so, so can you tell us about your experience, Nathaniel, in how you uh, lived in this house and, and came to the conclusion that you needed to study the subject? Absolutely. I, uh, my dad is a pastor. 
And in some way, shape, or form, I've always been uh, in the ministry family. So I was a minister. And uh, But to answer your question, when I started when I was eight years old, and uh, I was going to a very strict Pentecostal church. And we moved into a house that was very much haunted, full of activity. I remember going into the room that my dad had assigned to me at the actual open house prior to closing. And I saw a little girl underneath a bed. She had black hair. She was wearing a uh, turn of the century, looked like a white linen dress. And then so after that, I, we moved into the house and I began to experience high strangeness. And many, many things that I experienced later on in life, especially in the religion that I was in, I couldn't define it. Um, so, you know, I'm talking about the shadow figures. Uh, there would be, I uh, had like two months worth of um, nightmares, of same nightmares, all in black and white. The room would get thick. At nighttime, there would be the smell of sulfur. And uh, it, it, it really, it really took me a while, guys, to grow out of that experience and grow into defining it. But when I turned 12 to 13 years old, I began to minister openly at my my home church and uh, begin to work in the uh, the deliverance ministry. And the more I began to look back in time and ask myself what it was that I experienced in that house the more I felt led and compelled to dive into this field and, if I can say this, use my gifts more towards the secular field of deliverance and not just within the home church that I was attending. But that, that's how I got started, and um, it's a very vast subject, and I'm, I'm excited to get into it with you guys. Sure, okay. All right, we had a, a really fascinating uh, pre show conversation you and I and um, uh, a couple of questions yeah and a couple of questions uh, arose too what would in your terms what would be the difference between a demonologist and an exorcist a demonologist studies the phenomenon an exorcist tries to displace it from an individual mm-hmm. and yes I would say that before I would ever be an exorcist I'd better be a demonologist okay now that's interesting because Does that make sense yeah I was working with Ed Warren in the early 70s. He suddenly just started calling himself a demonologist. And I hadn't hadn't, uh, known it. And I I know, according to him, he never officiated at an exorcism. He always would assist. And he he would share some recordings, things of this kind. Um, In 73, as we discussed, I, I had my first... Uh, assistant position at an, at an exorcism as a sort of as an attendant in the presence of a doctor and a couple of other people uh, and then that, that's in my, my latest book um, which I stuff I did, never wanted to write about before I was a seminary student assisting the diocesan exorcist uh, have you yourself assisted at exorcisms that kind of a dumb question I'm sure you have well that's a very loaded question because uh, yeah. there is an assumption that the, the Catholic Church has the authority over exorcisms. Exorcisms does not originate in Catholicism. No. And I think that in demonology, especially the field of demonology, that has to be understood. Because uh, I get that question a lot, and I'm thinking in my mind, okay, which right of exorcism? Because if we're just going to go off of Catholicism, no, I haven't thrown holy water. I haven't, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is to classify all rights of exorcism, 
uh, as Catholic-based is a, uh, an injustice to 3,000 years oh, yeah. of Eastern literature. Um, so, no, I have not done the classic rite of exorcism within the context of throwing holy water, but I have assisted and have uh, entered into the Ministry of Deliverance, um, but more of an Eastern approach with the Lurianic, uh, Kabbalistic, uh, I guess, approaches to it. But, no, I have not done... The, you know, putting a cross to a head. And not that that's not effective, but I have also done exorcisms, but not in the uh, Catholic rite. Okay, no, fair enough. Okay, well, before we get into some of the Eastern approaches to that, um, why don't we begin? And you know, you know us, we want to define our terms. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When, um, and, and as we were discussing, you know, in 73, when I started to do this, you know, and it was in the Roman Catholic context, uh, it just. Something just wasn't right. It, something was fishy here, and it wasn't necessarily the fault of of the priest, Father Lawrence. It was. It just the whole scenario just seemed like it wasn't good enough, you know. Um, so, so share with us, if you will, as we do to me on the phone, your own view on what demons actually are, uh, if the term is adequate, and and what um, possession really is. Okay. Well, a deeper reality. My, absolutely. And my position right now, and I've been researching this for a long time, my research has led me to the conclusion that demons, the Greek migratory loan word that the ancient Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites employed, a demon um, is not horns and hooves. I'm sorry. Not sorry, really, but it's <laughs> not. <laughs> okay, you know, I think that, <laughs> but it, it's not horns and hooves. And I, it, to answer that question explicitly, um, a demon is a disincarnate spirit of a mortal that was once conscious in a body at a particular time and place. When it became disincarnate, then it, it, and a demon again, it's not... That, that all discarnates are demons, but your malevolent entities are what the ancient Hebrewites, Hebrew Israelites keep saying. Hebrew Israelites would call a demon. And so if I go into a house and someone says, okay, I believe I have a demon, I never go in there thinking I'm going to fight a pitchfork, a hoof, or a slithering tongue. What I know that I will deal with is an entity that has its own belief system, that has its own uh, memory, and it has its own values. And so that's why when someone says, okay, what's a demonologist, I, I back up because, like, you know, we talked about this earlier, we have to define our terms. And I believe that it's very, it's high time, guys, that the field of demonology starts to realize that we no longer have working vocabulary for much of what we are experiencing. And so the term demon is nothing but, in my mind, another linguistic form of antiquated dogma that I believe we have to throw away and start over again. So no hooves, no hooves, 100% consciousness. It's not new life discovered. It's old life discovered in a new way. Okay. Well well put. Um, I. I Personally, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe my, my interpretation was incorrect. But where I might differ uh, right. is in, in the, the notion of discarnate entities. Now, uh, physicists at least tell me that the uh, the ability of of a uh, of a survival, whether it be human being or anything else, 
in a discarnate form under our laws of physics, at least in this this corner of the multiverse, if you believe in that, uh, would be would not be possible. Now, maybe that maybe we're dealing with undiscovered science, and certainly you have firsthand experience of this. My firsthand experience of it, and again, maybe I'm just interpreting it wrong or just differently, uh, is that th- these are fully almost. I've had physical interactions with them. So at least in the case of, of some of the poltergeist stuff that we thought were demons at the time we were calling it that, uh, it seemed to be something more th- than this kind of, and it did not seem to be human. They seemed, seemed to be completely alien, you know, in a very broad sense of that term. Now, now that's my experience. And again, it might be wrong. Um, I don't, I have never found any humanity in, now, now as far as angry spirits are concerned, that comes up all the time. And uh, what we refer to as parasites may be non-human, but but I admit the possibility there could be um, discarnate humans. I guess in some parallel, it, it, it's, it's, it's rather slippery. That's why I kind of lean toward the the, the the parallel world kind of thing uh, and physical versions of the same people rather than the spare. But again, you know, maybe it's six and one half dozen of the other. What say you? Well, I've never approached this phenomenon scientifically. I would never, because when I go into houses and you've been there, when you witness something that absolutely transcends the microcosm of not just science, but 3,000 years of science, at that point, what these entities are doing is they are transcending every law that we know to exist. And and if if I base my research on what science allows while staring into the face of something that has already transcended what science says it allows, then in my opinion, I am not handling the data accurately. Because there are many times when you go into, not you, but you know, people in general, especially me, I'll go into a house with a loaded question and I'll approach it scientifically and within five seconds, everything that we know to be science is thrown out the door and you have what's called single-point energy, where you have an explosion, and you, you've seen it. Yeah, in the Bridgeport yeah. guys case, where, I mean, in one fleeting moment, everything you thought you knew is just abolished. So, to go to a scientist and say, hey, listen, can you quantify the next universe? When we haven't quantified the vastness of our own yet, then I think that is very problematic and, and I think that in many ways it limits this to what science is willing to acknowledge and even give a right to exist. And, I think, and that's my position on that. I think that's an excellent point, Nathaniel. As a matter of fact, uh, it brings back uh, bad memories of, uh, for example, <laughs> the, yeah, the Bridgeport House in 1974. And people often ask, what is the scariest thing that ever happened to you? Well, very often the scariest things are not the phenomena, but, but, but the phenomena that smash your belief system, as you so, so eloquently just said. Uh, you know, when I was in there having a physical struggle with what, trying to protect a little girl in the face of what we believed were spirits, that smashed my belief system. And the thing drew strength from it, you know? So, so I hear you, brother, on that, you know? Yeah, yeah, no frame of reference, and that's the most, that, 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 that will shake a person. Yes, that's true. Deeply. Yeah. Um, what have you found that using uh, even a Christian approach to a well, let's say a possession or or or, or, or a 
problem of, uh, caused by one of these entities um, when the people are not Christians is not a good idea because I have yes uh, as far as the possessing entity or the person that is possessed oh well actually both Okay. Yeah, because That's I find that the belief system of the person who is quote unquote possessed is is very important because because they I, I think that they, they have to tacitly agree for it to take place. Uh, yeah, and, consent. and they have to, yeah exactly and they have to work to help resolve the situation. Yes, absolutely, and that is uh, and you're not the only one to think that. I, I completely agree. And the earliest uh, demonologist, I was an exorcist. But he was, his name was Isaac Luria, and he, uh, he was the leader of the Kabbalistic movement in Safdi. It's a, it was a prophet in Israel. He was the earliest exorcist to notice that. And, and that was one of the components to his argument that what we're dealing with are not evil, like, like, you know, again, fallen angels, but we're dealing with disincarnate humans who are looking for other embodied humans who have the same belief system as they do and then once they would possess that entity in many times or that person many times that entity would speak through them to a pastor or if you know, it was a, if it was a muslim you know, to to uh, an imam or if it was a jew to a rabbi but you're exactly right and that goes down to it comes down to this that's what they're doing they're looking for a mirror of their own belief system so that way, it's a, it's a part of how they possess people, and it's also a part of how they gain consent within the victim that they've chosen. Can you give us some some cases, some examples of what we've been talking about? Uh, at least Absolutely. up until our break, when we have some good news. Actually, we Skype we have Skype we have Skype properly oh. working, but during our break, which will be in about six or seven minutes, uh, we'll be talking. Okay. About, but in the meantime, can we start talking about some cases that you've run into? Pentecostalism, and I'll tell you, uh, many times I would go pray for people at the altar, and um, what we were considering to be demons uh, would instantaneously have a remarkable knowledge about Pentecostal theology, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as if they were afraid of the same gods that I were, the same god that I was, and I would go lay hands on someone, because that's how we, that was our tradition, and um, you would, you know you'd be dealing with an entity that was not the, the person themselves, and you would hear the entity talk to you, but it, it always it always sounded like they were so knowledgeable, not about Catholicism, right? Not about any other Abrahamic religion, but it was about Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I began to realize that, hey, it's just like you said, maybe there's something wrong here. And so that's when I really began to um, delve into the deliverance ministry. But I do have other cases if you want to talk about those, but that's where it began. That, that, that theory originated in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Well, well let's, we'll have more time after the break to talk about that. But okay. in the meantime, Nathaniel, I've noticed certain steps, and this everybody has, I guess, uh, from a sort of uh, contact, whether it be through uh, divination, Ouija boards, or any of those things like that that are not good ideas, um, to a sort of codependence with an entity, to obsession, yes. and then what's generally considered to be possession, uh, and very often there's a role of drugs and alcohol in there. Um, yes. Uh, can you 
speak a bit about that, your experience with, with these steps that lead up to these terrible uh, terrible events and cases. Absolutely. I, um, my, well, not my last case, but my second my last case was, it was a murder. And I was invited to the house, and it was a murder that had just happened maybe two or three months prior. And I can't go into too much detail because the case is still ongoing. We talked about that before. Um, but I will say this. When I, when I got to the house, I, I was already feeling uh, the, 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 the culprit, the murderer, was dealing with suicide hmm. as, as a, a mode, a sufferendi, of this entity entering into her consciousness. And I, and as I was going through the case and talking to the family, I realized how these entities will gain consent, and you, you, you hit it on the head, especially with drugs and alcohol. But more so than that, that is almost a, I guess, a spiritual lubrication. In other words, it's like you know, oiling. It's like you oil an engine. It makes it easier for that entity to step into the dimensions. Of that person, the way they will do it is when you have a malevolent entity, whatever negative energies he possesses, it will mold those negative energies into the negative energies of the person that entity is possessing. In other words, it will conform to you before you conform to it. In that first stage, when it's conforming to you, that is, in my opinion, what I have called grooming you. Mm-hmm. And it will, it's, it's a fact-finding mission. What about you looks the most like me? So, and, and, and that's how drugs, especially, you know, alcohol and the occult, that's how they, that's, these are the tools that these intelligences use to manufacture consent within their victims. Okay. Want to take a break a little early? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take our break a little early here. We're going to hook up uh, normally uh, a normal Skype w- with our guest okay. and uh, get our video going here. Uh, so you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England, beautiful Blackstone River Valley on this Happy New Year Day. And we will be right back. Stick with us. Hi, Moose Man here. The Groove Line is aired every Thursday live between 1 and 2 p.m. and replayed at 6 to 7 p.m. All your favorites, a variety of rock, and the Beatles every single week. That's the Groove Line right here on ON. It's the latest thing. It's offline shopping. You don't need a special app. You don't need a credit card. You don't even need someone to watch your porch for delivery. In fact, when you do offline shopping, delivery is always free because you take what you bought home with you. Because offline shopping is local shopping in stores with real shopping carts where you can touch and feel and see exactly what you're buying before you pay for it. Join the latest craze and help your neighbors and your community in the bargain. Try offline Offline shopping today. This message sponsored by the Blackstone Valley Independent Business Alliance, the Buy Local Group. Local and live at 99.5 FM. Okay. And welcome back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome back behind the paranormal uh, with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul. Uh, ben is here as our producer, and our very amazing guest today is Nathaniel Gillis, 
uh, demonologist, and uh, we're having a great conversation on this. And we will continue <clears throat> right here on ON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM as we go. Okay, now, Nathaniel, uh, we were talking about... Um, uh, the the uh, possible influence of of drugs and alcohol uh, in these these things, and of course, uh, the context of my work was primarily in the state hospitals, where there were all sorts of issues, uh, men, you know, mental illness and uh, dependencies, things of this kind. Looking back at human history, things like DMT, ayahuasca, etc., were used commonly in uh, among uh, many ancient peoples and, and current ones too, in the shamans, for example. In South America, et cetera, uh, what um, do you think that they might be inadvertently opening the door to entities such as this? I mean, one one looks through the um, one of the galleries at the British Museum, and you see these horrifying, you know, backyard deities that nobody could possibly right. love. Um, what, what possible <laughs> connections could there be with our, our remote ancestors in in this regard? In the regard of opening doors or... Yeah, opening a, doors and uh, simply uh, coexisting with these things and thinking they were gods. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. Our ancestors did the best with the data that they had. And with the, the evolution of human thought, what would often happen is they would come across an entity that was larger than life but not other than life. <laughs> mm. And so they would consider those entities gods. And the way these gods would manifest themselves, it would most often be a preternatural knowledge about the earth, not so much as the future, but the past. And what would often happen is these entities would come to them and make requests. And the request would mainly be animal sacrifices or something having to do with when life is extinguished. Um, and, and I guess that's, I think I understand your question. And if I didn't, uh, please educate me because I want to. No, no, that's okay. I, it was kind of a rambling question, I'm afraid. Uh, one of the things that, um, uh, commonly discussed today in the whole, in the general paranormal field is the idea of, you know, ancient aliens, okay, if, regardless, you know, presumably being people from other planets who came and influenced our ancestors. However, um, and there was often, I have a presentation that Ben and I give uh, on religion and aliens in the sense of, you know, which religions could accept more readily the presence of alien life or, or the existence of alien, all this kind of thing. And one of the um, questions that people will say, aha, you have a seminary background, you're going to say that all aliens are actually demons trying to fool us. Right. Um, in my experience, though, it seems that most of the the demons, quote unquote, are actually aliens in a broad sense of the term. I'm not saying other planets, Absolutely. but you know other 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 forms of of life or whatever you want to call it. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, I mean, when we're we are in these the presence of these entities, these disincarnate in my mind, these disincarnate spirits, it will feel alien to us. Mm. Just the immediacy, the immediate emotion. It displaces you. Now, if we're going to approach uh, the demons as, as aliens, there are many thematic elements within antiquity, even biblical antiquity, uh, that I think that would that mirror itself, mirrors itself with the alien concept. And mainly, and I, now this is interesting, mainly the aliens' indulgence in human bodies, the abduction. The, uh, well, 
I mean, now I'm going to get into Dr. Carl Turner's work, but you understand where I'm going. Oh, yeah, the, sure. the, the, yeah. the harvesting, it's interesting. They're not harvesting our shoes off of our feet. They're literally harvesting what any race would need. And this, this is where I think we get it messed up. Any race would need to further their existence. Now, what's interesting is if it's alien, and this, here's a theory that people always operate off of, well, they're doing this to save their population or, you know, they're taking it back to Pleiades and they're doing ABC with that. The problem with that is um, why are they taking human, you know, why are they taking our biological substances if they're not human themselves or if there's, if there's not something that they can apply it to? That has ever been human. And so if we get into that, that's one of the, the nuances of demonology that really concerns me, is that it, it goes right back to what we were talking about as far as our, our uh, the ancient past, is that there has never been a time a demon has existed, existed where it has not desired coition with a human being. Hmm. Think about that. Hmm. Never. Not one single time, put that aside, not one time do we, have we ever heard of a demon existing until death entered the world. No. Yeah. Even, like, like, watch this, okay, um, even when we get into the theory of the Nephilim, I, it's, it's one of the things that I, I love discussing with theologians because my first question is, okay, do you believe that the spirits of the Nephilim uh, are demons? They're going to say yes, and I'm going to say, okay, cool, it's kind of underhanded, but I got to do what I got to do. I said, okay, cool. That understood. Do you believe then that demons are disincarnate spirits? They'll say no. No, it falls apart. <laughs> so the whole my whole point is this: um, concerning demons and aliens. Absolutely, there is an amount of fluidity there that is is remarkable and irrefutable. Both of them are harvesting human attributes. Both of, both of them are using abductions, and as what, um, who was it? It was uh, the German anthropologist Fritz Kramer calls um, basically an illusion to confuse even the occultist and the abductee, and it's all designed to manufacture consent. And the question, the question here in my mind is not so much, okay, um, are we dealing with parasitic entities? We are, right? We mm -hmm. are. But what is it thereafter? That's where I'm at in my research. Yeah. Uh, and there's many ways, there's many rabbit, rabbit trails we can go down as far as, uh, you know, walking the line between demons and aliens. Sure. Well, it's interesting that, that you say that because a lot of, mm -hmm. I, I like to bring up the point much to, Many people's chagrin that you know you can't you can't ascribe human traits to non-human entities. So right. when people do have you know their experiences, and not to say that they're not experiencing something, but to right. say that how we view the world is how we view the experience itself. In the perspective, oh yes, in the oh per yes, that's a good point. Oh yes. And the perspective that we carry, you know, it, it carries over into the experience itself. So that being said, if these these um, if if all of these experiences are sort of catered to sort of trick us into c consent, right? Like um, to con sort of have that tacit agreement, it makes me think of you know early Christians believed um, that essentially a possession came from 
obsession over the passions. So, you know, passions over right, absolutely. the flesh and, and whatnot. And then that sort of gave an avenue for whatever to come in. So that being said, where do we play into the the possession itself? So we, we give the agreement and then power is taken away from us. So when, so if we do get possessed, do we really truly lose power, or do we still have the power that's there? Hmm. It's a very good question, sir. A very good question. And I would say, I would point everybody listening to the work of R.E.L. Masters. He, he wrote a huge book. It's an amazing book called Eros and Evil. And in it, it's a, it's a compendium of different experiences that witches and warlocks had in the medieval period and even forward and backwards uh, beyond that. But he detailed how these intelligences would, would groom, this is interesting, would groom their victims into giving them consent to possess. Now, this is why I really... When I, okay, this is why I have I have such a a, a guideline and am so concerned about people who are in depression, who focus uh, you know on the darker things of the occult. And I'll tell you why. It's not that those things don't exist. It's not that they're not realities. But one of the ways these entities will groom you is, like I said, they will step into the recesses of your mind. And they will, they will fact find. It's just like that person who had a, a heart transplant. And when that heart is put into the body and it sends, uh, you know, emotions and signals out to the brain, it's picking up information. And then once it's got you located, then it sends its own intentions out into you. And so with the occult, with especially, um, the Ouija board, with alcoholism, with drug addiction, all of these things are, are what are called, I call them, they're emulets. They are, they're tools that these beings use to conform your will to whatever they want it to be. Uh, now, one of the things that the German anthropologist Fritz Kramer wrote in his book, uh, The Red Fez, he was talking about the African possession art. In other words, he, you know, he's an anthropologist, so his job was to go in and he would read paintings and he would get to know the, the natives. And one of the things that they said was this. They said that we do not look at, at possession um, as though it is a bad thing. And, and also he gets to this big long, big long story, but essentially what he said is that when the person is possessed in Africa, he will have a different personality, and the crowd will gather around him, and then he will take a stone. Now, now, Paul, I, I promise you, once I start like naming these different characteristics, being uh, trained at a seminary, you're going to go right to the New Testament, and you're going to notice these nuances and how much they mirror the demoniac of the gatherings. Mm. But Fritz Kramer listed, he said they would scar the body. So the possessed person would take a rock and begin to scar his body. And then Fritz Kramer said something that has grieved me, and it's grieved me now since I've read it. I'm telling you, it really troubles me. He said, and the moment, at the moment of the scarring, he said, that is when we know that the possession is perfect. 
It's almost mm. a reference to Malachi Martin, right? Yeah, Perfect yeah. profession. But then he said something that, is, like I said, this, this terrifies me, but he said at that point, that person is what we call the demonic social skin. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Now, he listed this. See, and he, and he listed, he classified it as scarification. And he said at the moment of scarification, that is how we know that that possessed person has given 100% of its consent to that entity. Now, that is why when I deal with spirits of suicide, most of the time it's cuts. And it begins by scarring the flesh. We call it cutting, right? It's cutting. Mm. What? It's, it's, it's scarring you. And, and one of the things that in anthropology, one of the things that you'll learn very quickly is that scarification is what is called the imprint of culture. Hmm. And so that, again, that's consent. Um, and I, I'll give you a case I had. It wasn't even a case. I was just, I was out to dinner one night. And, um, and you know how it is, guys. When you're out to dinner, it doesn't matter what happens. If somebody knows what you do, you know, like, they'll, you'll have the craziest conversations. And then the next time you <laughs> yeah, see them, they're yeah. like, you know what, here's my mom. She has a headache. Or, you know, it's just, yep. and I'm not you know, making light of it, but you know how it is. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, uh, a girl that sat next to me, and uh, she had heard about, you know, some of my, my research, and she had her boyfriend with her, and Bless her heart, she said, you know, she goes, I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay. I didn't even know her name. She just literally just plopped down and just <laughs> went on with it. And she goes, well, she goes, my best friend's grandfather uh, lived in a haunted house, and he was chased out by a spirit. He had a heart attack, and he passed away um, in his front lawn. And as soon as she said that, I looked over her shoulder and I just saw a dark black cloud. And I don't want to say I saw it like with my eyes, but I felt it enough to know what it would look. I, I, I yes. guess that's the only way I can say it. No, just what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, no, listen, I said, no offense. I said, but I, I am well aware that you think that you came to me because of your friend or your friend's grandfather. She goes, yes. I said, but that's not why you're here. I said, there is an attachment of suicide on you. And I said, and it's hovering over your shoulders. And then I started digging into how, like, how depressed have you been, right? It, well, and, and what she'll say, she said this. She said, well, I was depressed for a while, but now it's just getting unbearable, right? Why? Because that entity is literally laying its negative features on top of hers, it's not just a little depression anymore. It's a lot. Why? Because he's there. It's there. And so I said, okay. And I said, um, I said, when was the last time you tried to commit suicide? And this is about scarification. I'm not getting off the point. Mm -hmm. she, she started crying. It changed my life, guys. She, her hand was shaking, and she's crying. Her, and all of a sudden, the, the atmosphere changed. Her boyfriend grabs her hand, and he doesn't know what's going on. Poor guy. Yeah, I felt bad. I didn't, you know, it was, just, it was crazy, but... She took my finger and placed it over her wrist, and I felt the scarification of that entity. She had tried to kill herself a year before. Now, do you remember how she came to be discussing how her friend's grandfather had died? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And again, she came to me as, you know, just seeking help. But 
Then she said, and I, I said, why did you do this? Like, what led you to want to end your life? She said, my grandfather killed himself in, in 2014. And so I, I employed a Lurianic rite, and it wasn't throwing holy water. And he, he did that too, you know what I mean? But, but more so, it was helping her remove that form of consent that she had been giving to her grandfather. Closing that door, you know, and, and, and it started with, you know what, maybe I am worth it, mm. right? And when we begin to close those doors... That entity no longer had authority to be there, and at that point, he's loitering. And, and so that's more so what happens. But that scarification, I, can't, I cannot highlight that enough. So there's, yeah. a, re- there's a really interesting sort of um, uh, correlation between all, all of these cases that I've noticed over the years, and it's isolation. Isolation yes. is, is, a big, is a big part of it. Now, you'll see where I'm going with this. We live in a society today where we have smartphones and all of these things that are meant to connect us, but studies have shown, and more and more sociological surveys have shown, that people are feeling more and more isolated. Now, in in our society today, you know, that's like ringing the, the dinner bell, right? You know, we... Absolutely. So the... The political situations that we're in, societal situations, all sorts of unrest all over the place. Do you feel as if this is almost engineered, or is that going a little too too far towards the conspiracy spectrum? Hmm. It's a good question. I would simply say this, that I do not believe that all of it is engineered. That's a very conservative statement, right? <laughs> it's not a misstatement, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> no, um... Essentially, I don't believe that all of it is engineered, but I do believe that that which isn't is being manipulated and used by these entities to influence their victims. Now, I'm going to throw you guys for a loop. Remember how I talked about scarification and the imprint of culture? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to I'm going to change one word in that sentence and let's see what happens with demonology. What if I told you that scarification was the implant of culture? Mm, hmm. Interesting. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. And that shows us how closely related the UFO abduction phenomenon is with that of demonic possession. It's, it's, it's so close, it's chilling. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Nathaniel, because... In 03, uh, I sat down with Bud Hopkins, who was the um, uh, major guy at the time for uh, researching abductions. And he had a photo album with him. And we looked through it, and I said, Bud, these marks you're finding on people, these are things I see in poltergeist cases. Yes, sir. And um, crossover phenomena now are something that, that we're working on a lot with some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the UFO people, uh, when uh, people are being abducted and all of a sudden they're having poltergeist activity in their house or demonic activity, right. as they'll put it. So uh, I think um, I'm seeing exactly where you're coming from, brother, because, uh, you know, this is, it takes a lot of um, of insight to, to, to look at it the way you do. Now, before we burn up the hour here, 
take some time to tell us about where people can find out more about you, uh, website, uh, writings, etc. Please go ahead. Uh, I'm mostly on YouTube. I, I I wrote my book a moment called Man is on Amazon. Yep. And it's a very it's not a large book, but I often like most people will just buy it and give it to people they know that are struggling with depression. Uh, suicide and different attachments. But my book, A Moment Called Man, is on Amazon. Um, you can find me anywhere on YouTube. I have a lot of interviews on there. Uh, my ups, my website, i got to update my website, guys, because it's the new year, and all I have on there right now is my past uh, shows and uh, my past events from last year. So my web- website will be updated with this year's events. And uh, But look for I'm, – I'm already writing my book. I know my title, uh, and it's going to be on demonology. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be a little bit different. I don't think you know. It's, I'm so in the middle of the road, guys. That you know, I, I some people will hate it, some people will love it. Mm-hmm. But um, my book's on Amazon. My website is njgillis.com. That'll tell you all of my interviews from last year and where I was. And uh, just look forward to uh, this year because there's a lot of information that's going to come out. And I'm I'm just honestly, guys, I'm so happy you guys had me on. Um, Rhode Island is a, I love Rhode Island. Oh my God. I love New England. <laughs> and I wish I was there right now to go get me some paella from, uh, what was it? Uh, Los Sandys. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta try Ellie's Donuts in North Kingstown when you're here. <laughs> oh, I get oh, some, my yeah, Lord. get some yeah, cakes and stuff. <clears throat> so, uh, we, we, I think we're time for, for one more question. We find, I've always found entities working together sometimes. As a matter of fact, we have nine different species that we've, Kind of put a uh, <clears throat> label to, and using different, as you as you suggest, using entirely different vocabulary, inventing our own terms just to be able to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Have you found in cases uh, entities at times working together? Like I, well, I've found in one case uh, six working together for you know in order to, and all I can think of, Nathaniel, is you watch these nature films, and you know the wolves attack. The, the caribou that is isolated, uh, that right. is maybe old or sick or something, you know, in some way vulnerable. And that's all I can think of is, is like, that's kind of like what they're doing, at least in, in my book. What's that you? Well, excuse me. The first time I experienced that was, um, after I did the case where the murder happened, uh, about two months later, I get a phone call from a friend of mine who also does, he's in the field as well, and he says, you know, I got a case for you. Excuse me, guys. And I said, what? I was like, where's it at? You know, and I get to the house, and it's literally a block away from the case I just had. Hmm. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm at the door of the second case. I'm looking at my the case I just had before. I'm looking at the house down the street. And so when we go into that house, um, and, and essentially it was this, this case I'm on, I'm still doing it now, but it, it was a, uh, a poltergeist. And, you know, it was it was awful. You know, we have a, a housewife, you know, awesome woman, and she's sitting there with her husband at the dinner table, and she's she's shaking, crying. And as I'm, she's explaining to me what happened, she goes, you know, I go to bed at night, and she said something will literally lay on me or lay beside me. And she said, uh, you know, my husband didn't believe it till it punched him in the face while he was sleeping. And she said, now when we go to bed, it, he's like, she said, it'll play with my hair, but it'll mess with his feet. And she said, how does it do that? I said, because it's literally laying between you guys. Now, at first, I thought that was the same entity that I, that, that, you know, we kicked out of the, the other house, but it wasn't. Now, while I was there in the kitchen with her, that entity that we kicked out of the house did show up. 
I mean, it was crazy how it, it changed. And I, I, you know, for some reason, I knew what I was feeling. I could tell it was it was the same individual. But for a second, it looked like the same entity. But once that entity realized who I was and that he, you know, we kind of had some rapport with each other in a bad way, it left and it hasn't been back since. But there's still manifestations there. There's still something crawling into the bed at night. And so absolutely, my question would be, it's just like I was sitting up with the family. At first, I'm like, okay, what are both of you doing here? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you, like, it, 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 it you know, it, it, it's, that's a whole different study, but I've experienced that as well. And, and what grieves me is there's a lot of demonologists out there, uh, and even just researchers that will go into homes, and because of the lack of research, I'm, har- I'm going to harp on it, they will confuse the two. And there's nothing worse than going into a house and having to deal with the, um, I guess, the trash and, and just stuff that someone who did know what they were doing was. I mean, it's not like we're giving directions to Waffle House here. We're dealing with people who are literally, oh, I'm not, I'm not making, you know, that are literally in the fight of their lives. Yes. There yeah. are, there's a very small margin of error here. Yeah. And so, yeah. That's answer your question. Absolutely. Okay, just in our last minute or two here, Nathaniel, our advice after all these years of you know throwing holy or doing all this stuff is is very simple. We call it the Peter Pan theory. Think happy okay. thoughts, stick together. Love yes. makes you strong. Yes, you know, absolutely. Faith, all good things. Even even laughter. I got once got rid of a poltergeist using a joke book. You know, yes. that, that was a that, unique circumstance, awesome. of course. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what, what say you? How do people avoid this? And, and uh, re- how can they sleep e- easily at night and uh, and avoid being um, uh, subject to these things? Okay. First of all, you, not you in general, but you as well, but, you know, not you in general. Uh, you're a complete person. And, and you are whole. You're, you know, and it, you're awesome. That, that's how I fight these entities because you know how it is when you leave a house and it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. It's like a sticky feeling. But the, the way we close consent, the way we close them off is by not seeking information from them and not letting them feed on us via negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, there's nothing that... Oh, there's perfect nothing. sense. I, okay, I had a case in Cincinnati, and they wanted me to come out, and I was talking to the, the young man, and, and I just didn't feel a release. I didn't... I, honestly, I, I, just, I didn't feel it. And I don't know why. I just... I, I, if I don't feel led, I, I just, you know, I'll refer to somebody else. But we could stop on the phone, and he's like, you know, he goes, I might need a, uh, an exorcism and all this stuff. And I said, well, listen, I, I can drive the hour and a half, right? I can do it. I said, but when I get there, just know that I'm there for one reason. I'm, I'm, I want to help you. And I said, but will you let me? That's the question. This is what he said. He said, well, I don't know. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I said, why? He goes, because this entity gives me information about people that I would have not otherwise known. And I said on the phone, I said, listen, I said, there will come a day when you will no longer think that you're feeding on him more than it's feeding on you, but it will waste you away because you think you're feeding on it. And it, it, No, 
It's manipulating you. And so that's my point. If we can, if we can look in the mirror and say, you know what, maybe I am good enough, right? Maybe I am successful. Maybe I am complete. And build that self-esteem. And then those holes and crevices, they'll be closed up in no time. Okay. Amazing conversation, folks. Nathaniel Gillis, thank you for an amazing show. We'll be in touch off the air. And uh, many blessings in your work. Indeed. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been a blessing to me. And uh, you guys have a good weekend, all right? Okay, very good. All right, folks, now to our announcements. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. This is our first year, uh, first uh, show of the year. Uh, let's try to make it a good one. Uh, we look forward to the 2020 lecture season, and our new first event will not be a lecture. Uh, there will be our annual appearance at the 5th Annual Book Lovers and Authors Expo on Saturday, February 15th, 1 to 4 p.m. at the Cumberland Public Library, 1464 Diamond Hill Road, Cumberland, Rhode Island. On April 4th and 5th, prepare for the New England Parafest at the Community Center in Kittery, Maine. And stay tuned for details as the date approaches. That may be in two different venues, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. So we will also be back at the Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend in September. Uh, That's uh, the 5th and the 6th as speakers. And as always, we will do our live broadcast from there. And that will be the 5th annual one from the historic Exeter Town Hall on September the 6th in the afternoon. And uh, the event is sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to raise funds for local children's charities. Uh, there will be other events throughout the year, of course, including the Greater New England UFO Conference in Massachusetts, Lemonster, Massachusetts, on Columbus Day weekend. And uh, I will be honored, I'm told, to be the uh, keynote speaker there in 2020, I guess in honor of 50 years of paranormal research. Uh, happy so. paranormal birthday. Right. Uh, check out your books, uh, or, or our books, I our should books. say. Yeah, mine check too. out <laughs> our books, not, <laughs> including Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of. And now, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeist, Parallel Worlds, and God. Uh, they're available from online retailers and in some stores, but for autographed copies, please visit the online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. And at that site, too, you can find out more about the show and many cases over the years. Uh, and there are uh, some of the recorded shows from our uh, going on 12 years on the air now. And uh, we do refer you, however, there are links on the site to various podcast sites uh, that will um, uh, carry shows. That Right now, we're, we're back to the middle of 2010, and we're working back to... Uh, to all, all the shows of 2008. So, Ben, what do we have for next week? So, next week, uh, we have on uh, January 12th, our old friend, Dr. Paul Leslie, uh, will be back to share stories of some weird, ex- weird phenomena that have been taking place during psychotherapy sessions. Uh, we leave you this afternoon with an uplifting thought for, from person or persons unknown. Rise above the storm and you will find the sunshine. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.